Hi, I'm Jess Van Ostrand from The Project Room. Author Rebecca Walker recently visited The Project Room to talk about her latest book, Ade, A Love Story, the fiction-like memoir about the man she fell in love with during her travels as a young woman. And we were joined by Seattle artist Tessa Hulls. As usual, we wanted to know lots of other things beyond the book, like who her earlier heroes were, how her writing process changed after becoming a mother, and how she so deftly balances her personal stories with fictional elements while working within the slippery area of her own memories of things from long ago. Thanks for listening. so lucky to have Rebecca here with us. She's in Seattle, just briefly. Um, and so I thought maybe we could just start by um, talking about this current theme that the Project Room is investigating, which is how are we remembered. Um, and I, I first want to congratulate you on the book, because I loved it. I thought it was just absolutely beautiful, and I dove right in and um, had lots of things I wanted to ask you about. So um, we'll just see where the conversation goes. Um, but in light of that theme, I was really interested in, um, you know, legacy and history, personal history, um, creative history, you know, what, however it maybe takes shape in, in your mind. But is that something that you think you could apply to either your process as a writer or this book specifically? Because family plays an important role in this story, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, I think that this book is very autobiographical, and for those of you who haven't, who haven't read it yet, <laughs> it's about a young woman who falls in love with a man on a very small island off the coast of Kenya, and they try to surmount several obstacles um, to be together. And it's a very, um, I don't know, how would you describe it? It's a very... Um, hopefully for readers it's a very poetic, emotionally charged love story about two people from very different cultures who are trying to be together um, I think as I've said in a, a few interviews already it's very autobiographical so when I think about remembering and reasons for remembering, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because I wanted to remember and commit to to, to history, to to words, um, my love for this man that I fell in love with when I was when I was younger, and so I've been writing it for ten years. And as I was struggling with the process of trying to figure out how to enter the book as a memoirist, I usually write straight memoir. Um, I realized that I had to get to the core of why I was writing it in order to finish. And when I really thought about why I was writing it, I realized I was writing it to honor him and to honor what we had mm. and to remember it in that way. And so memory and honoring, and uh, it's, it's kind of an ode to him. And I wanted to make sure that he wasn't erased from history in a way, not mm. just the individual, but also um, a kind of mm, an African masculinity that is so rarely portrayed in our culture, you know, especially mm. in Islamic masculinity. Uh, this very tender, generous human being. So I wanted to remember him and, and create a different kind of legacy uh, through this book. So that's very relevant, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah, in this process. Oh, wow. That actually speaks to one of the, the questions that I had, um, where 
you know, the line between to what extent was this autobiographical and as someone who is who works in memoir, um, I was curious about the choice to, to pitch this book as being less memoir-based, but one of the things that I was struck by um, was that there's such a tone of obvious compassion for the protagonist, and she comes across as being young, but there's such a tenderness about it, and just hearing you talk about the fact that it is so autobiographical explains that tone so much more, because it, it's, again, it's, um, it's about a relationship with your past self, not necessarily this character. Um, mm. But yeah, can, beautifully can, said. Can, oh, thank you. Uh -huh. um, can you talk a bit more about the decision to not portray this book as being as memoir-based as some of your other work? Yes. Uh, let's see. How would I talk about that? <laughs> so, so I've written a lot of memoir, and and part of the I've, I really enjoy writing memoir. I think I I use memoir to remember my own life and to record and to um, understand what has happened to me, and also to locate my mixed race, multi-regional, bisexual, ambi, everything identity within a sort of world that has not, and is starting to, but has, has historically not made space for that kind of complexity. So I've used memoir as a way to really, in an activist way, open up some new space, right, for different kinds of people. And this book, um, is a lot less activist in that way. It's much more of a creative, not that the others weren't creative, but this book doesn't really have an agenda other than to honor love and the power of love. And, um, and that seems so simple but, but to say, or so easy, but, but it's true, you know. Um, so, so in order to do that, I, I had to kind of depart from my usual, you know, writing about myself and, and kind of open up to this, this other world. And, and, and once I did that, I realized that um, not only was I more free creatively to create things that, I, that didn't exist, but also that the way I remembered it actually was not true. <laughs> That's you know what I, mean? I want to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah, so so it's funny because people who who really want it to be memoir will say things like, "Well, what color was the sketchbook that he gave you?" You know, and, mm -hmm. and I and I and then I realized, well, there was no sketchbook. But actually, <laughs> I remembered a sketchbook. Mm -hmm. you, you know, so sure. that's been really interesting, actually, um, to realize that. Um, the way I remembered it is very different from what happened. So, and it, so when that happens, you have to be, it is fiction. <laughs> Though, of course, I don't know where the line is between fiction and, and nonfiction anymore. It's all truth, in mm -hmm. a way. Um, but, But you're yes, allowing... So, there you but, and you're, yeah, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> so you're allowing yourself to maybe not fill in holes because they actually were your perceived perceived memory, right? And wouldn't, wouldn't you say that that's how most people operate? That over time your, your memory fills in yes, pieces? Yes, definitely. I think we're recreating ourselves through our memory all the time. We're mm -hmm. creating the selves that we want to be at any given moment and we use our memory to construct who we are now. Um, so that's a big part of writing memoirs. So when I teach memoir, I, ta I tell students, you know, who are you at this moment? Who? What's the identity that you're creating now? Who do you want to be? And then, and then pull from your memory bank 
in a way that will help show the formation of that new self. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So in that way, we are all going back at different moments in our lives in order to make who we are today by piecing together different memories that we have from the past, but then shaping them in a way that's beneficial for right now, for who you want to be. So, so yeah, I mean, memory is elastic. Um, it's always changing. It's, there is no one truth. Everything is seen and remembered differently by different people. Black, White, and Jewish, my first memoir, was almost called How Memory Works. Really? Because, yeah, there's a <laughs> refrain in the book, How Memory Works, I Remember Like This, I Remember. And that book was about um, a lot of pain, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, adolescent, um, mixed-race, post-divorce fragmentation. And the refrain had to do with, I remember things um, that hurt me, that cut me, that that were that were fragmenting, that, that, that caused a kind of crack in my psyche. Mm. And so I was really looking at how memory worked in terms of, of framing my identity at that moment, you know? And I was trying to create a kind of integrated Rebecca when I was writing that book. That was the reason I was, you know, I was trying to keep myself sane, basically. Mm. I always say that if I hadn't written that book, I would have lost my mind. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I was trying to find a way to weave these different selves and memories together into a cohesive narrative so that I could move forward as a fully integrated person, mm. you know. So I was able to, to, to use my memory in that way, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it was, you know, it, it was very, very helpful, very cathartic. Really? <laughs> I'm so glad that other people love that book because, <laughs> I, you know, it was really important for me, you know, mm. to, to, to write. And it seems like because that was an initial effort that then that sort of opened up some pathways maybe for you to then write beyond that like you had to do that first absolutely yeah I mean that was my second book the first one was about young women and feminism and redefining feminism for my generation um, which was also important because I'd grown up within a very politically charged slightly dogmatic community and I needed to create a space for myself to have questions about that and then I could sort of dive into the messier stuff of Mm divorce and race and class and all of that, Mm -hmm. you know, so yes. Well, working through that, um, you did it in in a really, you know, in a public forum, right? You're producing work for an audience, as all artists mostly, mostly do, I would say. So was that part of that, what you call cathartic experience, that it couldn't just be that you were writing journals for yourself, but that you actually needed to make it sort of for an audience? Yes. (laughs) I, I think... On a lot of levels, as an artist, I needed to ha- be able to transform my life and, and my quote-unquote sort of journalistic musing um, into art. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's our impulse as artists. We want to we want to achieve a level of craft and um, sophistication with our medium that is not just um, uh, a kind of personal recounting, but something that transcends time and place and gives someone a, a very powerful aesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. So that is, on, on the one hand, that was very important to me, and I worked very hard as a writer. Uh, but also, yes, I needed, I dedicated Black, White, and Jewish to my parents because I really wanted them to understand my life. And, uh, and I thought a lot as I was writing about the community that needed that work or that I perceived mm-hmm. needed that work. At that time, um, there was there was there were no books on growing up mixed race and post civil rights mm-hmm. and you know the, the the mixed 
story was really a narrative of tragedy, you know, um, not fitting in, not surviving, all of that. And I knew that this community needed a different story, and as I did. And I've always believed as you're making work that you don't quite know where it's going, but, but if you believe that you're making your work and some people are coming towards your work, you know, they don't know that they're coming towards your work, but they mm -hmm. are, and you're going toward them. And then the magic of the art happens when those two meet, you know, when the people who've been looking, however they've been looking, and you've been working and working in your little room, come together, then that's art, you know, that's the, the moment for me. So yes, doing that. And also, you know, I grew up in a very, um, my mother's a very well-known writer, as most people know, Alice Walker, and my father was a very sort of powerful civil rights attorney, and both of them in different ways either wrote about me or talked about me in a way that kind of defined my identity to, to in, in the public eye. And I felt at that time when I started writing, I felt a strong need to kind of reclaim my own narrative mm. in, in, in public, you know, so that people can understand that no, I'm not, um, I am that, that, that they are presenting me as, but I'm also all of this too, you know, it was, it was very important. Wow, well, and it's different when you say it, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yeah, because they have such strong voices that there's, there's an echo chamber effect just in anything that they say. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. And the idea of the many truths, you know, mm -hmm. so, so if, if the culture believes that one truth is the truth, and I then have to live under that truth, then it's a kind of imprisonment, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that was not going to happen because I'm too intense for to let that happen. <laughs> and luckily, I'm a writer too, so I was able to, you know, utilize the talents. Mm. Hopefully, that have been passed on, or at least the family legacy. As you mm -hmm. said. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a tangent, but that, um, I'm sure. really interested to know. Um, when you started growing into the idea that you were a writer and the whole notion of trying to rebel against your parents, did you have to go through a conflicted process of making peace with the fact that you were going to work in the same medium as one of your parents? Oh, yeah. Sure. Sometimes I think I, it would have been much easier to be a lawyer like my father. Would, would, he would be happy. I could take over the law firm. <laughs> there would be no competition. There would be no issues. Um, growing up, I always wrote, you know, and I always, you know, it was just how I expect, expressed myself. But I always felt that there wasn't enough room in the family for two writers, you know, and especially my mother was so powerful and so brilliant, and I was always in awe of her, really. And um, it took, it took a while, let's see, uh, and I had to be supported through the process. I remember writing a piece in high school, for instance, that I kind of thought, oh, I'm just going to write this little piece. And my teachers had to say, this is an incredible piece and we're going to put it in the newspaper at school. And, and then the same thing happened in college. And, um, and then magazines kind of started to pick up on my writing. And, and eventually I said, okay, well, I guess this is what I do. You know? mm -hmm. But there was some conflict around not wanting to ever make my mother feel uncomfortable. You know? I always wanted to let her have everything that she wanted. I never wanted to distract mm. from her. I realize now as we're speaking, <laughs> that's how I feel today. <laughs> it's changed over the years, but yeah, I think that's mm. a big part of, of what happened.
but now and, it's great. Now we're all fine about it. And 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 you're a mother. And I'm a mother. Too. So Thank I mean, has you. that yes, you I'm know, a big grown up mother. Yeah, yeah. You're, all, you're all grown up. <laughs> well, and so how you know, in my experience, as people say, motherhood changes everything, right? So I mean, just thinking about legacy and um, and memory and, and family and things like that. How did that shift for you? Mm. I don't, well, I, I wrote a whole job. book about that okay. called Baby Love. <laughs> right? <laughs> that was my second book. Um, and it changed everything. Let's see. Uh, yes, it changed everything. So what, what specifically... Well, I just wonder to... in the writing of this book, Yes. How, did it change your, your thinking, your process as yes, a writer? Yes, completely changed my thinking and process. One of the reasons that Ade is fiction... There are many reasons, but one of the reasons is that I decided that I wanted to let my private life be private. I mm. wanted to let my son have some distance. Um, I wanted to keep him out of my work. You know, I wrote Baby Love and it was basically, you know, blow by blow, giving birth to him, getting right. pregnant. I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, I, got, I don't know what he's going to think when he reads it. Hopefully he never will. Um, <laughs> but with Ade, I wanted to protect everyone. Mm, <laughs> you know? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I think being a mother you have that instinct, it's different. You want mm -hmm. to protect everyone um, that you love. So it definitely played a role. Also, once I became a mother, I realized that I could write anywhere and any time. You know, before mm -hmm. I was a mother, I thought oh, I had to have a perfect room and I had to, it had to be the perfect time and the lighting <laughs> had to be just right, right, and right. The spirit had to come to me, you know, all this crap. And then once I had a kid, it was like, okay, you know, I'm going to have to write, you know, in the back of the car, in the hotel room, <laughs> on the back of paper bags. And so he really changed my, my process, you mm -hmm. know, as an artist. And I, I'm very grateful to him for that, even though I don't have the same kind of luxury of time and space to create, he kind of has forced me to kind of get to the point quicker and take mm. advantage of time and think of time in a different way. Mm. Um, and again, as I always tell my students, you know, time, we don't know how long, you know, we're all going to die, clearly, and we don't know how much time we have, and every moment is precious, and so don't wait till you have a perfect room to write. You know, sit down, write, tell your story, do what you need to do, make your performance art, slide genius, whatever you do here, <laughs> Tessa. Um, I can't wait to see it. And, um, and he gave me that gift. It, mm. was, it was really, you know, it's accelerated my process. Mm. Which is why I have another six books coming out in two... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if only. <laughs> well, I, I know. I think time management is kind of an under-recognized talent in creative people. And really, creative people are incredibly resourceful and innovative and entrepreneurial with not just money, but also time. And so um, it's nice to hear you say that because sometimes you need to sort of be jolted into a, um, a sense of urgency, maybe, yes. or limited time to yes. suddenly produce a little bit more. Yes, especially if you want to be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> and you're concerned about legacy, and you're concerned about erasure. Mm. And um, yeah, it's important to kind of get to it mm -hmm. and not be distracted. Uh -huh. yes. So what has um, teaching brought to all of this for you? Is that something that is sort of, do you see that as part of your practice as a writer? Is it a separate thing? And, and how, are you interested in, in mentorship, which is something that's come up when we ask this question about how we remembered, we think about 
the next generation yes. of arts makers. Yes. Um, we've heard yes. a little bit about things that you say to your students. Yes. So what is your perspective on being a mentor? Uh, um, I love my students. It can be extremely draining. Uh-huh. <laughs> but also, you know, uh, very exciting, you know, because I... When someone is really good, it's like discovering gold, you know, and and helping them find their way. And it's usually about helping them find self-confidence, courage. It's not as much the craft or technique as it is being someone who believes in what they're trying to do, you know. And that's very rewarding to be able to give that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I learn from my students? The students that I have, that are my close students that I mentor, are very devoted to me in a way that I really appreciate. <laughs> um, they, they understand the importance of reciprocity, you know, hmm. because there is so little time, and as human beings, our, our, our life energy is finite. And to have students who understand that, that their teacher is giving so much, I give a lot to my students, and they feel a sense of wanting to give back, so they do all kinds of wonderful things, you know, mm. from cooking me delicious vegan meals or bringing me fresh flowers, or um, one of my students helped to organize our book party last night, which is really a lovely act of devotion, and I never we wouldn't have been able to pull it off without Lily. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's nice. And, and so then you get into a kind of apprenticeship mentor relationship that is more meaningful than just a kind of a back and forth of pages, you know, mm-hmm. marks on the page, but an understanding that a transmission is happening mm. and that the transmission is subtle sometimes and it comes through portals that are not ordinary. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. So it's not just technical know-how, right? But it goes no. much, much further than that. Yeah, and that's something that ties back into one of the things I was most struck by in that book, where um, it was almost as though the protagonist, seeing as we are calling it a work of fiction, it seems easier to just not say you in this book. <laughs> yes, no, yes, she's definitely not me. Yeah. yeah um, though she is as well me. She's both me and not me. <laughs> Uh Yeah, but sort of her process of discovering the freedom of constraints Mm. and coming from a background in which when you write about her relationship with her parents, you know, it's it's like permission to do anything is always just implicit. It's it's there. And the sort of loneliness inherent in that. And then um, meeting a day and seeing the way that he's tied to his family and, you know, even bringing money home for his mother and watching this character start to understand um, this reciprocity and see the freedom of it. It's, it's just, um, it's really wonderful hearing that mirrored in the way you talk about your students. And, you know, you've said that a couple times um, in this interview that you, you want to protect people. And it just, that sense of protection carries through um, really all facets of your voice so far. Mm, that's so beautiful. <laughs> yes, that's so true, what, what you're saying about, about Farida in the book, that she... She has grown up in a very permissive environment, and so she doesn't have a sense of boundary and a sense of rootedness, and he, Ade, does, and she so falls in love with that quality and starts to feel her own self congealing and cohesing in a way that she's never experienced, and, um, and that feeds her, 
her soul in a very important way. And, and there is a, a loop of reciprocity that begins between the two of them that is based in that dynamic. It's very true. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad you got that. It's <laughs> wonderful. It's so good to hear what readers get. You know, because you don't know. You just do your work and you put it out there and you hope that mm -hmm. somebody resonates with it. Yes. Well, we were talking earlier about the scene when they go to meet his father. Mm. And that's a really powerful scene where there's sort of this power exchange yes. with permission. And that also seemed to play against what the protagonist was experiencing with her own family. Very much so. Yes, so there's a, a sense of duty and obligation within Ade's culture that um, Farida has never seen. You know, in that, that scene, uh, they're on their way to, to be married, really. And, and Ade has to go and, and give money and, um, and get a kind of approval and permission from a father he's been estranged from for his whole life. And, and, and Farida can't believe that he has to do this, really. I mean, you know, she's thinking to herself, this man has given him nothing, and yet he feels the responsibility and, and, um, and the familial duty to go and, and fulfill this ritual of closure with him, with his father. I'm now a man, I'm now going to be married. Um, he has to show his father the woman he's going to marry. And then he hands the money over and the deal is done, you know, and he's able to go forward. Um, and that, that is a very intense <laughs> scene mm -hmm. in the book. And it was, a, and that's very, you know, in terms of fictionalizing, I, I mean, I remember that, that moment in, in, in the real the real, in, in, in the experience itself that I lived, as being just, I was blown out, you know, um, because the, the relationship between the two of them, there were so few words spoken, and it was all so ritualized in a way that I couldn't fully decode, but I knew that something was happening. There was a whole language that was being spoken via the way people were moving and looking at one another and what was being exchanged and the period of time that we were there and the way we approached the space and the way we left the space. And I mean, it was very dynamic. And if we had been here, all of us probably would know how to read everything that was going on, but it was so out of my experience that I, you know, I hope that I interpreted it in a way that is true to what it means there. Um, but it was a very complex moment, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, it will stay with me forever, you know. It was very powerful. And it was more than just like a dowry idea or a, mm. you know, it, it, was a, it was about masculinity and it was about fulfilling your obligation so that the next generation would understand what, what the right thing to do is. And it was about um, showing her where he came from, and it, I mean, it was about so many different things, mm. you know, um, what loyalty meant, you know, it was very powerful. All wrapped up into All wrapped one up in like a few moments, yeah, right? maybe 10 minutes. Oh my goodness, yeah, wow. you know, it was like, okay. <laughs>
you know. Wow. Yeah. Um, One thing that we've been asking people um, over the past few months is about um, heroes and early heroes. Um, And so we've been publishing some responses um, through Off Paper, um, just from highly regarded people who maybe haven't been asked this question before, or maybe they have, but they'd be willing to share it again. So um, it does kind of put you on the spot, but since it's something we're asking people, I'd be interested to know, um, in light of all of these things, if, and, and especially since you're a, an educator yourself, yeah. and, and you may likely be someone's first hero, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, whether or not that brings any, any people to mind... Heroes, like from when I was a child. Like, like or early now, first or? heroes. Who's yours, Tessa? Yeah, yeah, yeah Tessa's written one. Bill Watterson, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Been my first hero since childhood. My son loves Calvin and Hobbes. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Why is he your hero? Oh well, I, I wrote a whole piece on it. Oh, uh, okay. Don't you hate that when people <laughs> ask you that and you're like, I did a whole book on that. I wrote fifty. Yeah. But I, I, but in a, a sentence or two. Uh, he perfectly captures the exuberance of emotion, mm. I guess would be the best way of putting it. Um, but also as, as an artist, um, he so stubbornly refused to, to bend towards external pressures. And um, I have such admiration for the fact that he ended the strip on his own terms and was so subversive about it. Um, and I don't know, just the whole thing really resonates with a sense of freedom. Mm. Um, yeah, wow. so I respect, I respect... How did he end the strip? What happened? <laughs> oh, well, so he stopped, <laughs> he stopped drawing it in 1995 after years of battles um, with the syndicates and he refused to license any of his products and basically, you know, it was the most successful comic strip of all time, um, wow. but he refused to make any money off of it. And he basically got so worn down by fighting this fight to not make money um, that he just said, you know what? I'm done. And the last strip of Calvin and Hobbes, it's the most beautiful thing. It's um, the two of them walking out on a snowy day and just talking about how the world looks like a blank piece of paper ready to draw on. And Mm. Calvin just turns and looks to Hobbes and he says, it's a magical world, old buddy. Let's go exploring. And they just sail off into the distance. Wow. And that was the last one they ever drew. That is amazing. perfect. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Except I'm very concerned that he didn't want to make money. How did he? Was he independently wealthy? How did he? Well, it was more a matter of he. Like I think artists should make money. Yes. I'm not. I'm very pro that. I mean, was, he, he was yeah, making a comfortable a living oh, okay. off of the strips. Oh, okay. You know, he was carried in enough newspapers that he was definitely supporting himself off oh, okay. of it. But he didn't want to have Calvin and Hobbes boxers. He didn't want oh. to have like Calvin and Hobbes cell phone cases. You know, and, oh. and so he refused to trademark any of his stuff. And so anything that you can get with Calvin and Hobbes on it, it's all pirated. Uh-huh. None of that is officially sanctioned. Huh. I don't know how I feel about that. That's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, you just brought up the topic of selling out. Yeah. New can of worms. Yeah, new can of worms. <laughs> I mean, so so it's all indie. Well, anyway, so so okay. So people and do they make things like cell phone cases? Do they do the indies create these things and then he doesn't have any royalty share in that? Uh, yeah, I mean it's mostly um, like car decals of Calvin pissing on things. I don't uh-huh. know why that became <laughs> such uh-huh. a ubiquitous one, hmm. but those are around a lot and um, t-shirts, but. That's very interesting. It's like, it reminds me of the Shepherd Fairy, Obama, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of giving people freedom to do whatever they want with, with, with your image or with your art. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I feel about that. I have to, I have to think about that. Mm. People excerpt my work sometimes and they put it in context and I, 
I'm not, I'm, I don't always love it, but it speaks to them. And so I think, okay, mm -hmm. you know, you know, uh, all right. But, <laughs> but it's definitely, you know, I think when I teach my students, I, I'm always saying, you know, when we work together, we're going to be talking about publication. We're going to be talking about how you're going to make a living because I think that we need to support our artists, you know, and, um, and they need to be thinking entrepreneurially. Mm -hmm. They need to be thinking about, okay, how am I going to position this work in the marketplace? How, you know, what, what are people thinking about right now? How do I make my story connect with a larger narrative that, that's happening either nationally or globally or regionally? Um, to give it, not just to give it a, a kind of financial mm, moment, but a kind of relevance because people are, are looking, they need something. You know, and you, you have to pay attention to what is being called for in the culture. And that's part of being an entrepreneurial artist, I think, today. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. how do you figure yeah. out how to, how to do that? How to be true to your art and also find the zeitgeist thing? Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. how do you, you know? nudge your voice just enough that it's walking at an oblique angle that also works with what there's a need for? Genius, Tessa. That's great. <laughs> that great. Exactly. We've and, recorded and stay it. true to yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, so a hero. That's really hard for some reason. You know, it doesn't have to be a creative hero. We've gotten all interesting. You know, Gandhi has come up. You what? know, somebody's first science teacher. You know, we've gotten all kinds of interesting. I loved Wonder Woman. Oh yes, did you see that one? <laughs> was did someone else love yes. Wonder Woman? Yes, I love Wonder Woman. She was so important okay, to me. Okay, why? Tell us why. Well, she had those fabulous bracelets, mm -hmm. and she could turn around and become the powerful woman. Um, you know, she had a jet. She was invisible. I, I, let's see. I mean, um, how old was I when I was watching Wonder Woman? So I was in the fourth grade. My parents had just divorced, and she was very sexy and strong and powerful and you know multifaceted she was able to be both in the world but not of the world she was able to leave this world she was able to take care of people and fight injustice I mean all the different things that we want to do right as young girls I think I, at least I did um, and I loved her fashion I mean even though now we would deconstruct it I mean I don't know third wave we would say it's okay but I loved it. I thought, you know, I love the colors. I love the rope. <laughs> I just, I just love Wonder Woman. But I also love Charlie's Angels. You know, that whole, mm -hmm. that whole moment in in the culture when when there were these women um, holding guns and fighting the bad guy and um, and working together to do it. They were they were very inspiring to me. And they were clearly having fun with it. I think yes. that's what was different. Is that mm -hmm. note of um, just enjoyment and inhabiting that power. Lovely. Did you interview mm -hmm. Tessa? <laughs> <laughs> yes, inhabiting that power, the joy of inhabiting that power. That's a lovely idea. I think we all need to think more about the joy of inhabiting our power. Mm -hmm. That's very, that's very good. Thank so, you. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, often there's so much anxiety and you're going moment to moment and you forget about pleasure. And pleasure is so, it's, it's very important to have pleasure, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you. Oh, so wait, so much. wait, let me say. So, yes. so, so on that note, <laughs> yes, please. Um, one of my hopes for this book for our day is that people enter it and feel pleasure. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a book that I wanted to give and to write as a, a world that appealed to the senses and, 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 and gave a kind of emotional richness and, and that people could just enjoy and lose themselves in and, and you know, and emerge renewed on some level because of the simple beauty of the place and the people. So that sense of pleasure and giving pleasure is very much a part of what I wanted to do with this book. Mm. Well, and I think you succeeded incredibly well in that. Yes. What, what I came away with after reading it is um, it made me feel like I had been put inside of a snow globe for a little while and all of these different elements were just swirling around and it was so self-contained and there was such um, a depth of caring for every aspect of the story and then you finish it and you step back out and it stays there, still fully intact. Mm. But it's, it's that, yeah, that pleasure really comes through. Mm. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so yes. Much. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for um, so visiting us today.